Ready to go? Let's get to work. Uh, just to be up front, for some of you, this may be your last Sunday with us. Uh, we're going to get after it, and it is what it is. We need the seats. So, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is where we get the letters to seven churches. And we had said in chapter 1 of the first week is uh, that's the audience. John is addressing this to the seven churches in Asia, kind of modern day Turkey. And the situation was there was a lot of persecution going on there. And this is his audience that he's writing to. And in this letter that goes to all of these churches, he specifically addresses each of these churches. He addresses them. He kind of, there's a letter within a letter. Uh, and maybe uh, you have wanted to write a letter to a church before. I don't know. Maybe you have written a letter to a church before. Maybe I've received that letter from you. Maybe it was positive. Maybe it was like, hey, thank you so much for the work you do here. I love this church. Or maybe it was more negative. Maybe it was like, hey, why is this happening? This is not okay. There's a complaint. There's issues uh, and troubles and concerns there. Uh, and a lot of people have stories of church hurt. A lot of people have stories of church frustration, um, like we can't get this right, or why is this allowed to happen? Like we, we got that uh, all over, and there is no perfect church. Uh, and we tell everybody that goes through our assimilation process that if you stick around here long enough, we promise we will disappoint you. Uh, I guess guarantee it, I will probably personally offend you uh, at some point. Uh, we're just a family. We're going to get raw. We're going to get into the scriptures, and we're sinful people. Like, it's just going to happen. There's no such thing as a per- perfect church. But what makes a good church? Or what makes a bad church? Or what makes complaints about a church justifiable? Like, yeah, if that's happening, I sure hope somebody complains. I hope somebody says something. Or what kind of complaints in a church where you're like, I think you're just kind of focusing on the wrong things. I think you should just let that go. And we're going to look at how John addresses this. And when we talked about the circumstances in which John was writing, is there's just a lot of persecution. To be a Christian in this time, in this context, was a dangerous thing. Uh, And there was um, paganism. Uh, These were not lovers of God by any means. And it's one thing to recognize the corruption in our world. Like the things we see out there, the things we see in our world that are so messed up. Uh, It's one thing to do that, but it's a whole other thing when that corruption begins to make its way into the church. When the things that we see in the world, we're starting to also see uh, in the church. And last summer, we took, uh, we did a series called Dear Church where we took uh, a week and we looked at each one of these churches individually. And there's something specific uh, Christ has to say to each one of these churches, but there's also a common theme or a general message that we want to see when we look at all of them. And when you just look at each church individually, you miss the message to the churches. Um, so we want to look at uh, all of chapter 2 and 3. I'm not going to read it straight through, but we will cover most every verse uh, in there. So there's kind of a theme to each church. The same thing gets addressed, and we're going to look at those. Um, but there's a certain uh, particular message for the church at large when we look at this. So seven churches get addressed. Uh, it's their letters within a letter. Uh, so the book of Revelation or the letter of Revelation went to all of these churches, but inside it's like, well, I want to address Ephesus or I want to address Pergamum or Laodicea, but, but Ephesus read what was addressed to Laodicea and Thyatira read what was addressed to Pergamum. So it was for everybody um, that was getting addressed. And seven, um, or excuse me, they, they were circulated. These letters were circulated. In fact, it's in order if you were traveling. Uh, like if we got a letter... 
And it said, to the church in Iowa City, and then to the church in Cedar Rapids, then to the church in Waterloo. You're like, oh, yeah, you're going up 380. Uh, that's the same. Like, you're traveling a route, and along the way, it's these churches that, that are getting addressed. And each letter starts off, to the angel of the church of, and then it, gets, it lists the church. And Michael brought up last week that angel could mean, I mean, it just means messenger. Like, it could mean, like, there's just some kind of human overseer of that particular church that's being addressed, or it could mean like a literal angel. We don't know. I don't think it really, it doesn't change the meaning of the text. Personally, I would like to believe that it's a literal angel. I think that would be cool if we had our own angel for Veritas. I just picture his friend named Bert, probably wears flip-flops, likes high fives, right? I don't know. Maybe his name's Tyrone, and he didn't think that was funny at all. Uh, But... One of the things that Revelation does is it shows us that there's more to our world than just our world. Like there's a, there's a real battle between good and evil. And we kind of get this peek behind the curtain of a spiritual reality. In fact, uh, this is how Paul addresses it in a letter to Ephesus. Uh, this isn't on the screen. It's a bonus verse. Kids are excited. Bonus verse, Mom. That's what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He said, hey, there's more to this world than just what you see. There's a real spiritual reality in this world. And you kind of see that come out uh, in the book of Revelation. Now, out of the seven churches that get addressed, uh, only two churches are doing great. Uh, only two of the churches... Uh, only positive things are said to them, just, just encouraging, no rebukes. Uh, but five of them get a pretty harsh rebuke. Um, th- I mean, there's some heavy words uh, that Jesus has for his church. And there is a message to the church as a whole when we look at all of these seven together. Like Michael pointed out last week, seven as a number has a meaning. It's a meaning of fullness or completion. And he's saying, okay, I'm addressing these churches, but I'm also addressing the church. There's a message for the church as a whole. And the overarching message is, as a whole, the Christian church is not in a good condition. There's compromise happening. There's false teaching happening. There's sexual immorality happening. There's idolatry happening. It's finding its way into the church. And there's a message saying, hey, healthy churches are in the minority. I'm going to address seven of these churches. And only two of them, I'm saying, are doing really great. And the message to the church is a healthy, good church. It's in the minority. And it's not just, or the issue he's drawn to the surface, is it's not just our world is a pagan, lost, corrupt place. But that kind of same corruption and lies of the world are finding its way into the church. So how are we doing? How are we doing as a church? Are we a good church? And what determines that? I mean, the room's full. So is that, that's good, right? What, what makes us feel like we're a good church? You know, it's interesting that the two churches that are doing the best out of these seven are the smallest, least influential churches. And those are the ones that God's most excited about. So maybe we look at the wrong things when we judge how a church is doing. Maybe it's better to ask, well, what, what is a good church in God's eyes? Like, if God is looking at a church, what is it he's going to praise? What is it that he's going to critique in God's eyes? What makes a good church? Because that's what we want, right? Somebody give me an amen on that one. That's not a hard question. Right? You could have shouted Jesus. That would have been acceptable, too. 
but we want a church that, that God is pleased with, right? Because if, if we're listed like one of the fastest growing churches in America, one of the most influential churches in America, and God is looking at us like, well, I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's not a good place to be. On the same hand, if, if we're getting ripped apart in Reddit for our progressive furniture and oppressive Bible teaching, maybe you've read that thread, um, but God is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's where we want to be. So what makes us a good church in God's eyes? Well, let's look at what Christ praises uh, to these seven churches. What, what is he looking at and said, hey, good job. What, what's he applauding? So let's go through this. To the church in Ephesus, I love your music and coffee. That's what he says. It's in there. All right, he says this. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know uh, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So he's praising them. Then if you go further down, uh, same, same church, he says, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's like, hey, we hate the same people. So we got that common. I didn't think Jesus would say that, but he did. Uh, Here's another one. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He's saying, I know the trouble that you're going through. I know your, your material poverty, but you're rich. Not like materially, but like you have, you're rich in faith, like you're doing well. He's commending them. Or I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Like I see you, like you're in a tough place, but you're holding strong. Like I applaud that. He says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance that you, that your latter works exceed your first. Like I see your compassion. I see your works increasing. Like, good, good job. He's commending them for that. Or he says, uh, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Like, you don't have a lot like, of power and influence, but you are faithful. He's applauding them in that. Um, <clears throat> what is Christ? praising here like what's what's the common connection between all those things that we say we see here it's faithfulness despite the circumstances despite the hardships despite the struggles and opposition and persecutions like you're faithful like you're you're maintaining a faithfulness to me you haven't wavered you haven't compromised like he's kind of applauding their faithfulness listen the quality of the church is the faithfulness of its people the quality of the church is in the faithfulness of its people. Not in the talent on stage, not in the building, not in the bank account, not in the skills, but in, in the faithfulness of its people. Like these people love Jesus. They're committed to Jesus. They're faithful to Jesus in all of life. They want to honor Jesus. God is saying, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's what I'm applauding. Okay, so what is he critiquing? What, 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 what does he critique when it comes to these churches? Your, your child's check-in is just way too slow right? You're trying to pick up your kid without your sticker, right? That's frustrating. Is that what he says? Parking. Parking is difficult. I got to tell you this. Uh, last week I preached in Urbana and was able to drive down to catch the 11 o'clock service with my family. Uh, and parking between the nine, that, that's tough. Thank you for dealing with, with all the difficult parking. Uh, I appreciate that. That was hard to find a parking spot. 
Uh, one story I did hear, though, is that two people were battling for the same parking spot. Uh, and then uh, in the moment of frustration, somebody flipped the bird to somebody. And then they had the awkward thing of walking into the same church together. Uh, <laughs> so just try to be nice to each other. I know parking's difficult. Uh, there's struggles. We'll just bear our cross on that one. Just try not to give anybody the finger on Sunday morning. Let's do that. Low bar. But what are the critiques? What are the critiques uh, that are happening here? Here's what he says. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You lost your first love. You've kind of wandered from Jesus Christ. Or he says this. But I have a few things against you. You have some who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Here's another one. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. You kind of see a pattern here. Or I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Where he says this, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, or that you are either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So he's got some harsh words, some rebukes. And you think, what, what is Christ critiquing when it comes to his church? What, what is it that, he is, that he's passionate about calling out when he's writing these letters to the church? And it's compromising people. People that are giving in to the world. People that are kind of embracing the, the wickedness of their culture around them and it's kind of leaking into the church. Like they're, they're compromising. It's like they have abandoned the faith. They've just compromised their devotion to Jesus. This is what's getting called out. And you're like, well, how does that happen? Because we don't want that to happen to us, right? So how did it happen? What, what do we need to be on guard against? What do we need to have our eyes open to? And there's some references in here that tell us how that happened, um, which we need to know about. And there's some Old Testament reference, like one the church in Thyatira, he says, um, they, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, I don't know if you're pregnant with a girl or trying to figure out girl names. I would not go with Jezebel. <laughs> Stay away from that one. Uh, Jezebel is a notorious character in scripture for bringing corruption into Israel. Uh, you can read about her in 1 Kings 16, 17, 18 going in there. In fact, uh, Jezebel was a, a princess from um, a, a different land that married King Ahab uh, and brought corruption. In fact, uh, she introduced uh, idol worship to the Israelites, uh, ordered the slaughtering of the Israelite priest kind of leads up to one of the greatest stories in the Bible, in my opinion, when Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel kind of trash talking to bring, you guys know that one? Read it. It's awesome. First King 18. Um, so Jezebel is that character. 
She marries one of the kings of Israel, brings corruption uh, to the Israelites by introducing idol worship. And they're saying like, okay, how did corruption get into the churches in Revelation here? Or how did corruption get into Israel from this example of Jezebel? Through the back door. It's like it's not some kind of invading army that's going to take over God's people. It's like, no, 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 no. Just you marry it. You fall in love with it. You build a relationship with it. That's kind of how it works its way in. So you need to watch out for Jezebel. Like you guys are tolerating things you shouldn't tolerate. You're building relationships with things you shouldn't build relationships with. You're getting friendly with things you shouldn't get friendly with. That's what he's saying. Or the other example is uh, Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this story. Anybody familiar with this story? Numbers 22? Show me a nod of... Okay, you guys are with me. Great story. Uh, go back and read it. Numbers 22. Um, but, but here's what's going on. Uh, Balaam is a prophet, and Balak is the king of Moab. Uh, and he's worried about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Because they're coming out of Egypt, and they're like dominating. They're, they're cleaning up. They're taking over. And, and Balak, the king of Moab, is concerned about this, rightfully so. So he reaches out to Balaam. Uh, who's this prophet, and says, I need you to curse the Israelites. You may not know this story, but you may be familiar with his donkey. Now you guys know the story? All right, his donkey, he's like traveling, and his donkey stops and won't go any further because his donkey sees the angel of the Lord uh, in the road with a sword, but Balaam doesn't see it, and he can't get him to go, so he starts whipping the donkey. Like, let's go, right? Well, God opens the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey talks to Balaam. It's like, why are you whipping me? Like, would not not freak you out? Um, he's like, have I not been a faithful, you know, steed to you all these years? Why are you whipping me? Have I ever led you astray? And he's just like calling him out. Can you imagine watching TV at home uh, with your dog on the floor, and you start watching something you shouldn't watch, and your dog kind of looks behind you and is like, you call yourself a Christian? Really? <laughs> Would that not like freak you out? That was kind of this moment. Like, like the donkey challenges Balaam. Uh, but Balak reaches out to Balaam. It's like, you've got to curse the Israelites. He's like, I can't do it. I can't do it. But he does give him advice on how to take them down. It's like, these are God's people. Like, you can't go through the front door. You're not going to build an army to take on God's people. Like, are you kidding me? That's not how you do it. But here, here's how you do it. You just need to introduce some idolatry. You need to introduce some sexual morality. Don't, don't stop them from worshiping God. Just have them worship God and Baal. And a different God. Like this is how you take down God's people. Like you just kind of mix in some idolatry, some immorality. It's like that's how it happens, guys. These are the examples. Like, no, you marry it. You fall in love with it. You, you just introduce a stumbling block. Because that's what it says. It says, Balaam, who taught Balak, gave him this counsel to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That's what he's doing. He's like, here's how you do it. Let me, let me tell you how to take down God's people. Let me tell you how to get corruption in the church. You just mix it in. You just mix it in. That's how it happens. I mean, we see that in Genesis 3. It's not like Satan came out of like, let's get God. No, he's like, did he really say that? You're not really going to die. And you just kind of mix it in. And all of a sudden, you're in some trouble. You just start worshiping the wrong things. You just compromise here. You just compromise there. And I'm telling you guys, each one of these cities had a very, very pagan culture. And they had this pull 
to worship the gods of their culture. This enticement, this pressure to compromise, and it's finding its way into their church. That's the real problem. And listen to me, church. Just like each one of these cities, we will be expected, pressured, and lured to worship the gods of our culture. Did you hear me? Just like every one of these cities, we will be expected, pressured, and lured to worship the gods of our culture. And our own idols are the hardest to see. They wiggle in. You don't see it. It's a stumbling block. You don't notice the consequences. You just get into a relationship with her. It's tricky. And our own idols are the hardest to see. Like, listen, guys, it's easy to get up and preach about the, the sinfulness of homosexuality and the transgender craze in our world and how it's pushing worldly values on us. And I can get a lot of amens in this. But what about the shows you watch that are full of nudity? Should we talk about that? And you're like, well, Jamie, that's, that's pretty much every show nowadays. Oh, I know. I get it. I get it. Our culture has its gods. But what about when everyone in the church is watching those shows? What about the love of money and materialism? I mean, we live in a world where people are passionate about, I got to get that new iPhone. I got to get those new Jordans. I got to get this this new car. I got to live in this kind of house. I got to go on this kind of vacation. I got to get that gaming system. I got to get this thing, like whatever it is. Like, I got to get this promotion. I got to climb. I got to climb that ladder. And we're just kind of passionate about acquiring things. And like, whoever has the most is the best and is winning. And this is driving us. And I get it. I get it. The culture has its gods. But what about when everyone in the church seems to be trying to climb that same ladder? Should I keep going? What about vanity? Have you ever been in a church that talks about vanity? Or is that too close to home? Because we live in a culture where people have websites about themselves. Look what I did today. Look what I wore today. Look what I ate today. Look where I went today. Who cares? (laughs) You do. You do. Like the fitness industry is not even hiding anymore. Here's how to slim your stomach here's how to you know round your butt or here's how to do what it like here's how to broaden your shirt like here's how you look good like it's just kind of pushed our way guys listen why do you care or why are you so concerned about how your butt looks in those jeans do you want people to look at your butt why it's not funny or how about this one When you post pictures about yourself, do you use filters? Why? Or how about this? Why do you post so many pictures about yourself? When you do good things, do you project them online for everybody to see and applaud you? As you like you're being some good Christian witness? Because I'm pretty sure Jesus directly addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount not to do that. Yeah, it stings when it gets a little closer to home. And you're like, God, Jake, everyone does it. No, I get it. I get it. The culture has its gods. But what about when everyone in the church is doing it? Do you worship at the altar of youth sports? I mean, we live in a world where that is an obsession and craze. And I love sports, right? I was an athlete. I know, you're looking, like, we can tell. We know it. (laughs) 
I love sports. Valuable, valuable thing. I, I love sports. But there was a day not too long ago where Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings are just kind of, no, you don't do it. But now, it's amazing how full the parking lot is at the ball diamond on a Sunday morning. And I get it. In our culture, that's just the way it is. But what about when that's just the way it is with all the families in the church too? Like Balaam's advice to Balak. You want to take down the people of God? You don't go through the front door. Are you kidding me? They're God's people. You've got to sneak in the back. You don't, don't try to get them to renounce God. That's silly. Just get them to love sports more than God. You, you, don't, you don't get them to stop going to church. Just get them to feel like church is a beauty pageant. A place to be seen, to look my best, get a little worship of God and a little attention to myself. Or you don't have to stop them from caring about the injustices in our world. Just get them to hope in politics more than God. Or you don't have to convince them not to follow Jesus. That's, that's a hard one to do. Just, just get them to think they deserve a life of ease. You deserve it. You don't have to convince them that homosexuality is okay. I mean, textually, that's a pretty uphill climb. Just keep them watching Yellowstone. It's moderate nudity. Should I keep going? Have I upset everybody yet? It's hard to look at our own compromises, isn't it? It's hard to look at our own compromises. And these churches are doing some things really well. And some things get called out. And we're doing some great things. I love our church. I love our church. If I didn't work here, I'd go here. But what needs to be called out? But what needs to be called out? And if you're tempted to just kind of brush this to a side, because anytime anybody pokes at our idols, it's just like, you're, you're legalistic. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. But before you brush it to the side, let's look at the harshness or the heaviness of Jesus's rebuke. Here, here's what he says. Remember, therefore, uh, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you know what he's saying to that church? You better change unless, if you don't, I'm showing up. And you don't want me to show up. That's what he's saying. But you go down further, he says this. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That doesn't sound good. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your own works. Remember then... What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night, or I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Guys, Jesus has some harsh words for his church. Some harsh words for his church. Because nobody cares about the health of the church more than Jesus Christ. Like, have you ever had a dad or a coach, just somebody who loves you, just really chew you out? That's this. That's this. 
It's like, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to show up like a thief. Like, you are not knowing I'm coming. You're going to regret it. If you don't repent, you're going to deal with the sword coming out of my mouth. That's what Jesus is saying to his church. Because he loves his church. And he's passionate about the health of his church. So don't brush these compromises aside like, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus is ticked. And you can see it in his language. Guys, are we taking faithfulness to God in all of life seriously? And before you start thinking faithfulness to Christ is just some burden, look at the words towards the end of the last letter. Chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I what? I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Listen, I'm not just calling you away from sin. I'm calling you to myself. I'm here knocking. And if you would turn, you'd get fellowship with me. You'd get closeness to me. And it's so much better than all this thing the world has to offer. Like he's calling people to himself. Don't forget, like a call to repentance may be hard and it may sting and it may be convicting, but repentance is possible because of the gospel. Because despite our sins, God is still pursuing us, still knocking at the door saying, come to me, come to me, turn away from that, come to me, find fellowship here, find joy here, find life here, die to that, come here and find life. So how are you doing? How are you doing? How are we doing? Where are you most tempted to compromise? Are you full of truth but no love like Ephesus? Like you got great doctrine, you're just a jerk. Or you, you call yourself a Christian but you tolerate false teaching and sexual immorality like Pergamum, Thyatira. Or maybe you have a great reputation and everybody at work would say you're just a great guy but it's not real like Sardis. You're empty inside. You need to wake up. Or maybe like the Laodiceans, because we got a nice house and cars, plural, and all the food to feed our bellies that we want, we have lost our hunger for God and don't realize how desperate we are for him in our prosperity. Or maybe your compromises are more connected to our culture. And you are more devoted to seventh grade girls volleyball than the church of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you entertain yourself with sexual morality and don't think there's anything wrong with it. Or you are so wrapped up in vanity in yourself and promoting yourself on social media that you've lost the passion for the glory of God. And if that's the case, how are we to stay faithful in an unfaithful world? Because the pull is hard. Everyone's doing it. It's all around us. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. Like There's this lure and pressure constantly every day for us to look more like the world and less like Jesus Christ. So how do we stay faithful? Look at the beginning of every letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the angel of the church at Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, to the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Every letter begins with this glorious picture of Jesus Christ. Every letter begins that way. Because it's not just, hey, don't sin. Turn away, don't compromise. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. When you get an appropriate picture of Jesus Christ, why would you ever not be faithful to him? He is so much better than what this world has to offer. Do you know how glorious he is? Like, look, look at every introduction to the struggling church. He, John is saying, this is what you need to know about Jesus. Why would you turn away from him? Why would you, why would you choose something other than the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, who died and came to life? you get this big picture of Christ because a big view of Christ is key for faithfulness to Christ. And guys, this this has got to be the DNA of our church. Like if they could say anything about Veritas Church, they should say, oh, those people love Jesus. Oh, those people are passionate about Jesus. Those people are crazy for Jesus. And now look at the end of every letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church is plural. Like every church, let's hear this, including our church. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give the authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus with white garments and will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write him on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter, every letter ends with this glorious picture of the future. And to a group of people that are so stuck in the now, well, this is what's cool now. This is what everybody's doing now. This is what's exciting now. This is what I gotta get now. This is the pressure that I feel now. He said, all those people that are in the now, can we just like look a little further in the future to, to be able to eat to the tree of life, to sit on the throne with King Jesus, to rule, to be given a new, like, tell me what is now is better than that. And he's just stuck in the now, but could you just look a little further? 
Because I'm telling you guys, hear me. We need an excitement about our future for our faithfulness. We need an excitement about our future for our faithfulness. Like you need to have an excitement about the someday that shapes your today. That leads how you live. Let me put it this way. What you're living for has got to be greater than what you're living through. I want you to to remember that. What you're living for has got to be greater than what you're living through. And that, that applies to persecution or prosperity. Like for John's audience here that are going through tough persecution, he's saying, I know it's tough. I know the pressure to compromise. I know it'd be easier to give in. But what you're living for, this glorious future that Christ has made possible for you, that's got to be greater than the struggles you're going through. Or maybe it's not persecution. Maybe it's prosperity. Same principle applies. What you're living for, this glorious future that's possible because of Jesus Christ, has got to be greater than a pair of sneakers or a new phone, or that house, or that car, or that recognition, or that social acceptance, or that bonus. What you're living for has got to be greater than what you're living through. Now, guys, I don't know what a letter to us would say. I got my hopes, got my guesses, but I don't know what a letter to us, if it was... To the angel, the church of Veritas, Bert, you know, what it would say. I don't know what it would say, but I know how it would begin and end. It would begin and end the same way every letter to the churches begin and end. It would begin with a glorious description of Jesus Christ. And it would end with this call to conquer And what he means by that is don't give in to the pressure today. Stay faithful. Overcome it. And if you do, this like amazing promise. Because loving Jesus and longing for Jesus is the key to living for Jesus. That's what this struggling church needed. Hey, before you compromise, where you cave, can you just get a good look at how awesome Jesus. Would you just kind of increase your love for Jesus Christ? Can you get a good look at the future he has for you? Because loving Jesus and longing for Jesus is the key to living for Jesus. As a church, we want to kind of stoke our love for Jesus Christ. We need to remember that he first loved us. That God declared his love or showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That his body was broken for us. That his blood was shed for us. That despite our sin and brokenness, he's pursuing us. He's knocking at the door. Saying, I want to have fellowship. I want to eat together. I want to have a relationship. And it's better than anything this world could offer. So as we move into a time of communion and you remember Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed for us, hear the knocking. And whatever you're convicted of by the Spirit of God, Would you see a relationship with Christ, closeness to Jesus Christ, as better and pursue him? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, like a loving father that you are, you by your spirit would give us the words that we need to hear in our heart. And maybe those words are, You need to put me over those activities. Or you need to not watch those shows. 
or you need to really get your mind around your finances, or you really need to take a break from social media, that we would recognize our own idols and how empty they are, that we would see you as better, that we would pursue you, that we would hear the knocking, that you are opening, wanting a relationship with us, and whatever you have to offer is better than this world, and we would be faithful to you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.